like to invite you guys to open up your Bibles to Psalm 45. In your Black Pew Bible, that's on page 471. So let's read this together. Psalm 45, the Word of God says this. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Well, the day that May and I got married was a very interesting day. We were supposed to get married outside, and then there were just these horrible thunderstorms, so we had to move it inside at the last second. And it started off fine. It started off with me walking down the aisle with my mom, and then following us were the groomsmen and the bridesmaids. And then the wedding march song begins to play. And about 80 people on this side get up, 80 people on that side get up, and everybody turns around eagerly awaiting for the bride, for May, to walk down the aisle. And the song plays for like 45 seconds, and nothing's happening. Like May, she's not coming down the aisle. Everybody starts to kind of look around, and about 10 more seconds pass, and again, nothing's happening. So I'm starting to get a little bit worried. So I say to the matron of honor, I go, what's going on? Did May leave? And she's like, I don't think so. And I said, okay, thanks. Ten more seconds go by, and then finally, finally, I see her. What had happened was something was wrong with her veil, so her and her dad were trying to fix it up until the last second. But finally, I got to see my beautiful bride walk down the aisle. And I got to lock eyes with her, and it's one of those moments that you just will never forget. And it's almost as if God orchestrates things so that in that moment, when the groom sees his bride, everything stops and anticipation begins to build and build. And the one thing 
that is fundamentally different between a Christian wedding and a secular wedding is that at Christian weddings, the gospel is preached. And it was preached at our wedding, and it was very, very clear to everybody who was there in attendance that this marriage that they were about to witness between Dan and May, yes, it was going to show the love that we have for each other, but even more so, it was going to show the love that Christ has for his church. You see, when you enter into the marriage covenant, it's not just for our delight, but it's for the display of the glory of God, for the display of Christ's love for his church. And that's what makes marriage so important. Yes, we get to enjoy each other, and we get to tell our story together as a couple, but really our story is supposed to be telling a much bigger story. You see, in marriage, husbands, we get to show the love that Christ has for his church and how we love and protect our wives. Ephesians 5 says this. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In marriage, wives, you get to show the love that the church has for Christ and how you love and submit to your husbands. Ephesians 5 says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And the reasons as to why God created marriage are the same two reasons as to why he created the world. He created marriage for his own glory, and he created marriage for his son to show what he was going to do in providing a bride for his son. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. He said, God created the world to provide a spouse and kingdom for his son, and the setting up of the kingdom of Christ and the spiritual marriage of the spouse to him is what the whole creation labors and travails in pain to bring to pass. So that's why we love marriage, because ultimately it's a picture of the love of Christ for his church. This psalm that we're in today, Psalm 45, talks about a wedding and it talks about a marriage. Now, we don't know the exact historical background to it, Some have suggested that this might have been possibly Solomon's wedding to Pharaoh's daughter. That could be the case, although we're not sure. But regardless of whatever the actual historical background is of Psalm 45, we know that ultimately it's about Christ. And we know that for a fact because Hebrews chapter 1 attributes Psalm 45 to the Lord Jesus Christ, making it clear that Psalm 45, the king, the groom that's presented here, is in fact Christ. But even if we didn't have Hebrews 1, even if we didn't have that, there are things that you'll see in the text as we make our way through it that will make it very clear that the person being described here, this groom, this king, is unlike any other person in existence. The psalmist, he starts off in verse 1, and he says this. He says, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. So I want you to picture yourself as the psalmist here at this wedding. You're watching this event take place. And to you, this is the most magnificent event that you've ever seen in your entire life. And your heart overflows to the point where you have to tell somebody what it is that you're seeing. You have to write it down. You have to describe it so that others can know. And I want you to notice 
And maybe you caught it as we read through the entirety of the psalm at the beginning. I want you to notice at this wedding who it is that's at the center of attention. It's not the bride. It's the groom. The groom is the center of attention at this wedding. Isn't that so much different than literally every single wedding that you've ever gone to? You know, at my wedding, May, she was rightly the center of attention. Everybody was going up to her saying, you look so beautiful, you look so great. And me, I had one person come up to me and tell me I looked nice, and it was my mom. There, there, May was rightly the center of attention. But here, in Psalm 45, the groom is rightly the center of attention. After verse 1, the groom gets 10 verses, and the bride only gets 6. So the groom is far more important than the bride here. Let's look at how this groom, how this king is described in verse 2. It starts off, and it says this. It says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. So we need to stop and clarify here for a second because we know Psalm 45, the king, the groom in Psalm 45 is Christ. Okay, we've already established that. And he's just been called here the most handsome of the sons of men. But we also know that there are other texts in the scriptures that don't describe Christ as the most handsome individual. For example, Isaiah chapter 53 says this, that in Christ there is no beauty that we should desire him. So how do we reconcile Psalm 45 with what we know, say, from Isaiah chapter 53? Well, what the text is getting at when it says you are the most handsome of the sons of men, it is not talking about his outward physical appearance. Okay, and the reason we say that is because he's about to, the psalmist is, he's about to give three reasons as to why this king, this groom, is considered the most handsome of the sons of men, and not one of them has to do with his outward physical appearance. So really, when the text says you were the most handsome of the sons of men, what it's getting at is you were the most excellent of men, the most excellent of men. And we're told three reasons as to why this king is the most excellent of men. And the first reason, it's about how he speaks. It's about how he speaks graciously. Let's look at the middle part of verse 2. So it starts off, you were the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. So you see it's about his grace. It's about his grace. Here specifically in verse 2, it's highlighting the fact that the Lord Jesus is gracious in how he speaks. You know, we saw this all throughout the course of the Lord's ministry prior to the cross. In Luke 4, for example, Jesus, he goes into the synagogue and he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah. And he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. And after reading from it, he makes it very clear that he is, in fact, the promised Messiah of Israel just simply by reading from Isaiah chapter 61. And then he says to those who are in attendance at the synagogue, he says, today in your hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled. And then the people in the synagogue, they respond. Luke 4 verse 22 tells us, and it says, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. In John chapter 7, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they send officers to go and arrest Jesus 
And then the officers who were sent to go and arrest Jesus don't end up arresting Jesus. And the chief priests and Pharisees, they ask them, they say, hey, we sent you to go and arrest Jesus. Why didn't you arrest him? And their justification for not arresting Jesus, they say, no one ever spoke like this man. In John chapter 6, the disciples say about Christ that he has the words of eternal life. His words have so much grace, so much power, that in the middle of a raging storm, he could literally just say, peace, be still, and the winds and the waves obeyed him. In John chapter 11, he says to Lazarus, dead Lazarus, he says, Lazarus, come out. And what happens? Lazarus comes out from the dead. Commentators have rightly noted that had Christ in that moment not specifically mentioned Lazarus by name, if he had just said, come out, since there's so much power in how he speaks, every single dead person in the world at that moment would have arose from the dead. That's how much power there is in how he speaks. So he speaks graciously, and he speaks with power. So that's the first reason as to why he is to be considered the most excellent of men. Second reason as to why he is to be considered the most excellent of men, it's in how he does battle, how it is that he makes war. Let's look at verse 3. Verse 3 says this. It says, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. So you see, Jesus, he is both a man of grace and a man of war. And he fights and he does battle. He fights for what is right. He fights, the Lord does, so that he could destroy the works of Satan. First John chapter 3 says this. It says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. How does he do that? How does the groom, the king, depicted for us here in Psalm 45, how is it that he destroys the works of the devil? Well, we're told in verses 4 and 5, it says this. It says, In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. So we see here more specifically what it is that the Lord fights for, how it is that Christ defeats the works of Satan. We're told in the text that he fights for the cause of truth, of meekness and righteousness. He fights for the cause of truth, meaning he fights against those who would oppose the truth of the gospel. He fights for meekness. He fights for humility. He fights on behalf of the humble. He fights for those who are poor in spirit. Text says that he fights for righteousness. So he fights for justice. He fights against injustice. Isn't it interesting that these are the things that we're told in Psalm 45 that Christ fights for? Isn't it interesting that we're told about Jesus that he fights for the cause of meekness? It's a lot different than what the world thinks of when it thinks what a ruler and king should be fighting for. So you see, there is a massive, massive distinction between Christ and rulers of our day and age. 
And there's a connection here between these first two reasons as to why Christ is to be considered the most excellent of men, a connection that we don't want to overlook. So the first reason that we saw, we saw the Lord speaks graciously and with power. Second reason we saw is he's to be considered the most excellent of men because how it is that he does battle. These two things are very much related because the Lord does battle by using his word. That's how he does it. There might not be a better example of this than Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation 19, verse 15, it says this, talking about Christ, it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to break down the nations. Six verses later, in Revelation 19, verse 21, it says, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Third reason as to why Christ is to be considered the most excellent of men. It's in how he rules righteously. How he rules righteously. Let's look at verses six through nine. It says this, it says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings that are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. So why is it that the rule of this groom, the rule of this king in Psalm 45 why is it that his rule is so good? Well, we're told it's because it's upright. It's pure. It's noble. It's perfectly righteous, meaning there is nothing bad about this rule. It says he rules with a scepter of uprightness. Just how good is Christ as ruler? Well, we're told in verse 7 that he loves righteousness, and he hates wickedness. Text says you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. You know, Jesus is the only man that can say that 100% of the time, all the time, that he loves righteousness. He's the only one that can say 100% of the time, all the time, that he hates wickedness. But there's application here for us that we don't want to gloss over. Because so often, Christians will wonder and Christians will ask themselves, how can I know if I'm becoming more Christ-like? How can I know if I can recognize sanctification working itself out in my life? How can I know if I'm being conformed to the image of Christ? Well, ask yourself this question. Do I love righteousness and do I hate wickedness? We need to be a people that loves righteousness and hates wickedness. So when we see something good, we rejoice and we praise God. When we see something evil and wicked, we hate it. When we see sin in our own lives, we don't make excuses for it. Instead, we hate it. We despise it. We despise our sin. And listen, it is very, very easy to fall into the trap of deceiving ourselves 
into thinking that we are loving righteousness and hating wickedness when, in fact, that's not what we're doing at all. To give you an example of just how easy this is. It is very, very easy to watch entertainment that we know God hates and yet rationalize and say to ourselves, you know what, it's really not that bad. We'll say things, we'll say things like, hey, this show I watch, yeah, I know that they blaspheme God over and over. I know there's multiple, multiple scenes of lewdness throughout, but you know what? The episode lasts for 60 minutes, and those scenes only really make up like three to five minutes on average, so it's really not that big of a deal. You know what we're doing when we say things like that? It's called making an excuse, and we don't want to do that. Now, are we going to do this perfectly? Are we going to love righteousness perfectly? Are we going to hate wickedness perfectly? Of course not, right? We're still sinners. As I said, Christ is the only one who can say that he does this perfectly. But there has to be something in us that's desirous of loving what is right and hating what is wicked. Now, there's a lot more to say about these middle verses, particularly verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7 are incredible. Verse 6 says this, to the king, to the groom, to this man, It says this, it says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So you see, this is no mere mortal man. The text is referring to the groom, to the king, as God. It's clear. It says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, some have attempted to get around this. Some have attempted to downplay what the text says here. So, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses since they come to the scriptures with the demonic presupposition that Jesus is not God, they come to Psalm 45, verse 6, and they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, I see what it says here. But you know what? That word throne, that noun in Hebrew is in the construct state, so it's supposed to be translated this way. Horrible argument. Terrible argument. Others have attempted to get around this, by saying, okay, yeah, I acknowledge that it says here that the king is God because that's very clear. But you know what? It's really not that big of a deal because ancient kings were almost always referred to as God. And that's true to an extent, right? Rome referred to their king as God. Greece referred to their king as God. Egypt referred to their king as God. Other nations did that as well. But you know what nation never does that, referring to a human king? Israel never does that. And yet, here's this king, this man, and he is being referred to as God. So this king is God, and yet, at the same time, he is distinct from God. The author of Hebrews, he affirms for us that this is, in fact, the case, When he says this in Hebrews 1, verse 8, speaking of God the Father, he says, But of the Son, he, God the Father, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So that's God the Father talking to God the Son, and he explicitly calls him God. Now, if you needed even more evidence as to why this king is, in fact, God, we're told that his throne is forever and ever. 
and ever. Isn't that comforting for you to know today? Isn't it comforting for you to know that Christ is on the throne? Isn't it comforting to know that there will never be one millisecond, not one nanosecond in the future where Christ isn't on the throne? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your throne, O God, will last forever. Now, there's even more to say about these middle sections, and this is really awesome to think about. Verse 7 says this. It says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So you see what the king gets here? You see what the groom at this wedding gets? What Jesus gets? He gets gladness. He gets happiness. Christ is glad. Christ is happy. He's joyful. He's glad that he has a bride. He's glad the Lord Jesus is that he could come here and live and die and rise from the dead for his bride. He's glad about that. Isn't that so cool to think that adjectives that you can use to describe Christ are happy, glad, joyous? His reward, it's to have a bride. His reward is to have a people for himself, and he's glad about it. He's glad, Jesus is, that he came down here and obeyed the will of his Father at every single point. I think sometimes we tend to think of Christ's obedience to the Father as something that he really didn't want to do, but he just did it anyway. Almost like how we obey our boss at work, right? Our boss tells us to do something. We don't want to do it, but we do it because that's kind of the nature of our relationship. But that is not at all what we mean when we talk about Christ's obedience to the Father. No, he delighted in the fact that he would obey his Father. He delighted in the fact that he would come here and save his bride. He delights in the fact that he is our Savior. Think of this for a second. Think of the joy, think of the joy that Christ had when he went to the cross. What great joy he must have had knowing that what he was doing was going to rescue his bride, rescue his people. What great joy he must have had on that Sunday morning when he rose from the dead, affirming everything that he said would happen, knowing that what he just did saved his bride. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says this. It says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So the result is Christ being glad. And he's glad beyond that of his companions. That's why the text says, it says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions, meaning the happiest man in the universe is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the happiest, most joyous person in the entire universe. Charles Spurgeon, he put it like this. He said, the joy that was set before Jesus was the joy of saving you and me. I know it was the joy of fulfilling his father's will, of sitting down on his father's throne, But still I know that this is the grand, great motive of the Savior's suffering, 
the joy of saving us. The joy of saving us. So we've seen the groom here. We've seen the king be rightfully praised for who he is. And now it's time to transition and to talk about his bride. So let's read verses 10 through 15. It says this. It says, Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. And many-colored robes she has led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. So there's something very, very important being said here to the bride, and it's what we find in verse 10 where it says, Forget your people and your father's house. So the bride, she must put her former ways and desires behind her. You know what this is a picture of? This is a picture of what the Christian must do when coming to faith in Christ. Now, when the text says that, forget your people and your father's house, it doesn't mean that you are not allowed to have relationships with people you knew prior to coming to faith in Christ. Okay? That's not what it means. What it does mean is that you must put your former desires behind you. Really, what it's talking about is it's talking about prizing and treasuring Christ above absolutely everything. Above everything. Above things like ethnicity, we need to prize and treasure Christ. Above things like racial heritage, we need to prize and treasure Christ. Above things like social and economic status, we need to prize and treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to be defined by the fact that we prize and treasure Christ. And that's a question that we all need to honestly ask ourselves. Can we honestly say that we prize and treasure Christ above everything? If somebody were to come up to you and they were to ask you, what do you prize and treasure most in your life? How would you respond? Would you respond by saying, well, it's a pretty easy question for me to answer. I'm a Christian. I prize and treasure Christ above everything. Or would you respond sort of like this by saying, oh, well, you know, there are so many things that are prized and treasure. I treasure my job, and I treasure and prize my education, and I treasure and prize the ethnic tribe that I come from, and I treasure and prize the volunteer work that I do, and I really like sports, so I treasure and prize the Dallas Cowboys or the New York Yankees or the New York Mets. Oh, and by the way, I also happen to be a Christian, so I prize and treasure Christ too. That is not how the Christian is supposed to respond to that question. Not at all. We belong to Christ. And being a Christian is far more important than being anything else. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, speaking to Christians. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So we prize and we treasure Christ, 
We prize and we treasure the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And we deny ourselves daily to follow after him. Luke chapter 9 verse 23 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And there's a great joy that comes from following after Christ. A great joy that comes from knowing Christ. That's why it says here in verse 15, it says, with joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. So you see, you can only be truly glad, truly joyous by knowing Christ. That's the only way. So often, so often it seems like people will say, and usually I found they say this as a way to justify their own irresponsibility in life, but not always. People will often say, well, you know what I want? I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. And in a very real way, obviously, God in his common grace does allow for people to experience worldly happiness. But true happiness, true joy, everlasting, eternal happiness and joy can only come from knowing Christ. And since that's the case, since that's the case, it would only be fitting for this psalm to end by telling us something more about the Christ, telling us something more about the groom that we've seen here in Psalm 45, telling us something more about the king. And that's exactly what it does. It ends with a benediction to this king. Here's what it says in verse 16. It says, In place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. So the groom, he'll have a people. The groom, he'll have children who go into all the earth. And ultimately, it will result in praise for this groom, in praise for the king. Verse 17 says, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So God, by the pen of the author of this psalm, he promises his son, he promises God the son, the second person of the Trinity, the groom, the king that we've seen here, he promises him that his name will be remembered and nations will praise him forever as a result. And before we close, I want you guys to notice in the text the therefores that are here for us in Psalm 45. The first one we saw in verse 2. So, again, all of this is about Christ. And it says that grace is poured out on his lips. Therefore, God has blessed him forever. Second, therefore, we see in verse 7. It says that since he has loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore, God has anointed him with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. And the last, therefore, we see in verse 17 that since God will cause his name to be remembered forever, therefore nations will praise him forever and ever. So you see, it is all about Christ. It's all about Christ. He's the king. He's the groom. He's the groom who is delighted to look out for and care for his bride, the church. And the response of his bride, the response of his people is to bow to him. That's the response. And we see that in verse 11. It says to the bride, it says, since he is your Lord, bow to him. 
bow to him, submit to him in humble and loving and joyous adoration. Submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you are yet to be rendered among those who would call themselves the bride of Christ. But you've heard about Christ here. You've heard about this groom, about this king. And you say, he is so awesome. I need to know him. How do I do that? How can I be rendered among his people? How can I be rendered among the bride of Christ? What's well, so simple? Believe the gospel. What's the gospel? Well, the gospel starts off with the very, very, very bad news. And the bad news is this. You are a sinner, a hater of God, an enemy of God. And because of your sin, because of your wickedness, before the God of the universe, the God who hates wickedness, you are justly right now under his wrath. And God, he would be perfectly right to strike you down and to send you to hell forever because that's how serious sin is in his sight. That's how serious wickedness is in his sight. But then there's great news. There's great news today. There's amazing news. And the amazing news of the gospel is that Christ, the groom, the king here in Psalm 45, he left heaven willingly and with great joy And he came down here to go on a rescue mission to save his bride. And he lived a righteous and perfect life for his bride. And then he went to the cross. And on the cross, the wrath of God the Father against sin was poured out upon Christ. And then he died after being ridiculed and mocked and spat upon and beaten. He died. And then three days later, with fullness of joy, He arose from the dead, knowing that everything that he had just done had redeemed his bride, had purchased the people for himself. And the Bible is clear. Turn away from your sin, turn to Christ, and he'll save you. You know, there's great joy. There's great joy that comes from rejoicing in Christ. Amazing joy that comes from rejoicing in Christ. It's a joy that surpasses everything else. The call is to find that joy in Christ today. Let's pray together. Father, we, just, we thank you so much, God, for your word. We thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus for us, that he came here with fullness of joy and gladness, that he came here not because he was forced to, but because he wanted to, came here, rescued his bride. We just praise you, God, We praise you, God, so much for that. We praise you that this was always the plan in eternity past. We praise you that the plan was always to send Christ into the world to save his people. God, I pray that if there's anybody here who right now is not rendered among the bride of Christ, I pray, God, that you would save them. I pray, God, that you would convict them. Pray you would cause them to be born again. Pray, Lord, that they would see the glory and the goodness of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.